Welcome to Indie Matters. The show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this episode of Indie Matters, Jacob talks with UNLV President Keith Whitfield about his first academic year on the job and how he plans to handle everything from COVID to the budget to increases in diversity among faculty. After that, reporter Jackie Valley and assistant editor Michelle Rindels come on the show to talk about businesses looking for employees and the Department of Employment Training and Rehabilitation's reinstated requirement that people on unemployment need to be searching for work. And at the end of the episode, I talk with our man in D.C., Humberto Sanchez, about the $1.8 trillion American Families Plan and about protests in the nation's capital from immigrants shielded from deportation through temporary protected status and DACA. It's been almost a full academic year since UNLV President Keith Whitfield took the top job at Nevada's largest university. So we thought it would be a good time to sit down with him and dig into some of the most pressing issues facing UNLV today. What you'll hear next are portions of an interview I conducted with Whitfield last week, covering everything from COVID to budgets to diversity. But there is plenty more we couldn't include here. So if you want to read the full interview, you can find it at thenevadaindependent.com. So I first asked about the one thing that's still defining almost everything colleges and universities do, COVID. UNLV, like many schools, went largely online last year when the pandemic hit, but it's now planning for a fall semester that's almost entirely back in person. I asked Whitfield how UNLV's role in managing the pandemic might change once the new academic year is upon us. So our intention is is that we're going to be back in person in the fall. We haven't hit the exact number in terms of percentages. Before, we were 80% remote, and we vacillated around those numbers just a little bit. But we do expect that to be flipped, that we're going to have 85, maybe higher than that, be in person. But we will still have some, we call them high-flex, hybrid classes where... Uh, professors will actually offer both, both remote. This is, it speaks to how skillful our faculty are, because that's almost like a, a Merv Griffin kind of moment of that they're kind of managing those two things. But I think that's one of the things we need to take off as a positive, is that our faculty have kind of gained a new skill set in being able to kind of manage their court cl- classes and courses using technology and using that virtual environment and they can go back to what they know best, which is is doing it in person. So we're trying to make as much flexibility as possible. It can't be done for for everybody, but we're we're thinking strategically about which courses we might think about trying to have in that high flex space. And, And it's based a lot and it's driven a lot. We work very closely with our faculty to figure that out. Part of talking about COVID inevitably is talking about budget cuts. The pandemic crushed revenues for higher education statewide, and state-level cuts spurred by lagging tax dollars only compounded those hits. Some of the damage was offset by one-time federal relief through the CARES Act and, more recently, the American Rescue Plan, but these budget cuts often have long-term consequences, as we saw during the Great Recession. So I asked Whitfield what his plan was to keep UNLV on track through the next decade. That one's a long answer, but let me see if I can shorten it a little bit. There needs to be certain priorities. One of our, the one of the priorities that we have is student success. And so we have to make sure that as students now have to transition back to the old way of doing things, that they actually have all of the 
the mechanisms that they need, looking into seeing ways that we can increase advisors, for example, because that creates clear pathways for our students to be able to get their degrees. So that's one element. Another element is about our ability to be able to hire and retain faculty. That was one of the huge swaths that we used as a mechanism for being able to address the cuts from last year. And we're hoping that it's so funny to almost to hope, we're not hoping for a 12%, but we're hoping that it's no more than a 12% cut that happens because it's still going to really severely hamstring us. One of the reasons why this is important is to be able to deliver the best education to our students and to be able to have a full faculty be able to do that. Second is, is that as we recently become a research one Carnegie top designated university, and that's driven by our faculty. And so having to dip into that a resource that we have in terms of being able to to recruit and hire uh, great faculty to come here is something that worries me greatly, that it's something that we're really going to, to need to be able to do for us to be able to retain that status. In addition to that, it is the other kinds of operations that we do as a university, both internally and externally, what we give to what we provide for the community, but also the kinds of things that we just you do to run our normal operations. We have people working on it. I would say I could call them any point in time and say, what are you doing? And they're working on trying to figure out ways that we can find efficiencies because we're being forced to. It's not necessarily the best practice, may not even be the best thing for us, but it's to accommodate and to try to adjust to a budget cut. To close out all this budget talk, I wanted to ask Whitfield about one major higher education issue that's arisen in Carson City this year, and that's a bill called SB 287. It's a measure that would formally recognize UNLV and the Desert Research Institute as land-grant institutions. That's a federal designation that has to do with a law from the 1800s. Now, that has a lot of implications, from access to research grants to money dedicated to cooperative extensions. So I started by asking him... Why is SB 287 necessary and good for UNLV? Our perspective on all of this is that we want to figure out a way to grow the pie, as it were, for the state. There are grants that can be pursued. We've identified a number of them that we have the talent and because of our location to be able to do that. We are an urban research university, and that's a very unique combination of skills where it's not just even for the city. We do do outreach into rural areas uh, as well. And so we have that balance there. And there, there are some opportunities for us to be able to do that. It doesn't necessarily mean it just because we're local, but we are in this part of the state. We're connected to the community, but we're going to be connected even more to the community as time goes on. And so our ability to be able to help provide support for different aspects of the community, whether it be 4-H or urban sorts of things in terms of economic growth and, and things, those are things that can fall under that land grant item that we're very well positioned to do. We're, we're already committed to doing those things, but it would be great to have those additional dollars. Those additional dollars come to the state and they have more of an impact than just paying for people. They actually uh, promote other parts of economic growth for the state just because there's indirect costs. It's less of a reliance on other things. I mean, uh, you have to be careful with research dollars because research actually usually costs money as much as it actually brings dollars in. But this is one where we kind of grow the brand of this part of the state as being both community serving and research oriented and, 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 and. So it's it's more of an issue of, of just making sure that there's fairness and the opportunity to be able to grow and do other things. As UNLV has praised SB 287, UNR has criticized it. 
UNR, it's important to mention here, is the only institution in Nevada that's recognized by the federal government as a land-grant institution. And UNR President Brian Sandoval, who actually vetoed a very similar measure to this when he was governor in 2017, told me that the move would serve to dilute the pie of federal money that's already there. He said that it would gut UNR's extension programs and not give UNLV enough money to recreate them on their own, a very similar argument that he made to the 2017 measure. Finally, I wanted to ask about diversity. UNLV is among the most diverse student bodies in the entire country, but its faculty is still majority white. On top of that, Whitfield, who is the first black president in UNLV history, has been open about his goals to identify and address institutional racism built into the university itself. He even went as far as to mention it explicitly in his State of the University address earlier this year. I asked him how he thought those initiatives were going so far. Well, we're positioning ourselves to figure out just what those initiatives have been. I was blessed to be able to come to a university that was already talking about those well before what we saw happen last year and, and even the current uh, situation with George Floyd. Our Office for Social Diversity and Social Justice, Social Justice, Social Diversity, has been there for, I think it's three years now. So those things are nothing new. We're tied for the second most diverse campus in the country. And that then has been a piece of who we've understood who we are. And so my arriving, it was really to say that let's not fool ourselves. I think sometimes in education, in higher education, we believe that because we're educated that racism doesn't have a foothold in it and, it, and it does. And I think we're trying to be honest with ourselves about it and think about ways that we can try to deal with that. We've talked about this relative to hiring faculty. While we have a very diverse student body, our faculty isn't as diverse. I try to be nice because I think our faculty, particularly our faculty senate, our leaders, Vicki Rosser, they're really passionate that we need to change these. And I go, be nice to ourselves because we're not as far behind as others are. Yes, we can do better, but we've got we've got a foundation to be able to do better. But it's it's those structural things and it's some of the interactions. It's so fascinating, Jacob, because it's it's another kind of interaction or intersection that we have. Like last year, what we had was the intersection between a lot of it was the the actual seeing George Floyd and what happened to him that intersected with COVID and a pandemic. And it was like these two monumental things that were changing our lives that, that really were this fascinating intersection that hopefully will bring long sustainable change. I think now we're at another point where we're recovering and we're in a position to create a new normal. So what is that new normal going to be? And it's both between, are we going to wear masks? That is now one of the big questions. And also, what are we going to do relative to trying to make a more fair, just, and an equitable society? I think you're going to see a lot more activities where we make sure that we hear the voices of students and faculty and staff. I think that has been one of the, the biggest challenges is that it's not necessarily about numbers sometimes, because when you talk about affected groups sometimes or disadvantaged groups, many times they're minority groups, meaning that they're a smaller group. But what you want to do is to be able to hear those voices. One of the things that I really have enjoyed doing, and we're only stopping because graduation's coming up, is that I've been having lunches with students. And we do them virtually. It's not opportune, but we have a lot of fun. And they really bring up a lot of conversations, a lot of issues that I then have a little notepad. I start taking them down and I go to my cabinet, my staff, and we start talking about ways that we can try to address those. I think we're going to see uh, ways in which we can try to make sure that as we look at pools of candidates, that there's always a good amount of diversity in those pools. And if not, we don't think about them as being successful candidate searches. Taking a look at our curriculum and seeing what opportunities we have to be able to really provide uh, diversity. One of my little 
pet desires is to be able to use small videos, short videos, and, and other opportunities to be able to build cultural intelligence. And that be something that too, a student could walk away and show to a future employer, hey, I'm going to be a great team member. I'm going to be a team member, not only that works in terms of the state, maybe nationally, maybe internationally, because I've got a great education, but I've also got these other experiences. And some of them are in the way of being able to understand issues around cultural intelligence. We want to build things that are going to be sustainable and put us on a different trajectory relative to trying to deal with issues of diversity. As I mentioned at the top of the segment, that was just a portion of my interview last week with UNLV President Keith Whitfield. If you want to read the full interview, you can find it on the NevadaIndependent.com. So I am here with our reporter Jackie Valley and Michelle Rendells, and you guys have been doing some reporting on, on businesses reopening and kind of struggling to find new hires, actually. And this is partly because some people are saying that the unemployment that people are getting is, is better than working at a, a minimum wage job or a job that pays a little bit less than what unemployment would be doing. So Jackie, let's start with you and just talk about what are these businesses saying and kind of what are you hearing from them? Yeah. So uh, yesterday I went to a job fair at Gold Coast, which is a Boyd Gaming casino down here in Las Vegas. Jeff Scheid, our photographer, and I went together and we specifically got there right at the very beginning because we weren't sure what to expect. And we were pleasantly surprised to see quite the line of people to get into the, the job fair for their interviews. Probably at least 300 people there at any given moment. They were hiring on the spot. They have hundreds of positions to fill because capacity restrictions are loosening. Demand is ramping up down here. And so they need cashiers, the food and beverage folks, guest room attendants, you name it. But they acknowledge that it has been a little trickier this time around. It's not as if it wasn't hard to hire before the pandemic, because there certainly were issues then too. But it's just like a sudden ramping up that has been a little trickier. I also talked to several smaller business owners. One was a donut shop owner in Reno, and then a couple of restaurant owners down here in Las Vegas. And they all universally said it's been one of the toughest hiring environments they've encountered. They're just doing a lot of advertising and not getting tons of applications back or people flaking out. I think there's this probably oversimplification of a narrative that, oh, it's just because people are sitting on unemployment benefits and making a good buck without having to really work. There may be part of that, but also what I'm hearing, I spoke to the director of the Children's Advocacy Alliance, uh, Dr. Tiffany Tyler Garner, and she brought up some really valid points about childcare issues, increased housing costs, all of these factors that may be preventing people from getting off unemployment and immediately jumping back into the workforce. In fact, a woman we met at the Gold Coast yesterday, she got a job right on the spot. She had spent many years working at another casino and then was furloughed. And she delayed trying to get a job back because she has elementary age children and she was doing the whole school routine with them. And so now she finally felt like it was time that she could do that because they're spending more in-person classroom hours. So, you know, I think there's lots of dynamics at play and I don't think it's as simple as, oh, there's all this federal money coming in to keep people afloat. Yeah. And Michelle, you've kind of been talking to the other side of this, which is Dieter, the people that are providing unemployment. There's been a lot of issues going on with Dieter this year from just getting people unemployment at the beginning of the pandemic to to kind of the changes that they've gone through, whether it's verifying your identity or now having to do this, verifying that you're looking for work. So can you kind of explain to me 
what you learn when you talk to them about these these new requirements? Yeah. So just this coming week, they're going to reinstate the work search requirement. So to get unemployment benefits in the past, typically you've always had to be willing and able to work and actively looking for a job. So that's always been kind of a requirement. They suspended that requirement early on in the pandemic because they said it's not safe to have people hopping around from business to business and and interviewing, but also because there weren't that many jobs um, early in the pandemic and now we're seeing it kind of rebound. So I think what struck me was that the work search requirement is actually pretty easy to meet. Very few people do get tripped up by it because at least for the gig worker side of things, you just check a box and say, I have been promoting my self-employment business or myself as a gig worker. That could mean so many different things. And you're really just kind of self-certifying that you're making some sort of an effort. So actually I looked on the Facebook groups where a lot of these applicants hang out and they had been commenting on my story, explaining that the work search requirement, and they actually were seeming to receive it pretty well, thinking that that was a reasonable requirement at this point, because there's a lot more business coming back. And the the leader of Dieter, Elisa Caffarata said, this is not about you having to take just any job that comes along you're not going to get disqualified if you refuse to work at McDonald's when you had previously had a really well-paid salary job. It's only if you refuse something that is absolutely suitable, that is kind of exactly on par with your previous work. It's not that they have to take the first job that comes along. So it's sort of good as, as businesses are opening up that people are starting to be out there looking and having those conversations. Uh, and it's all part of a, a process of transitioning back to uh, sort of regular, regular life. The work search is sort of a good faith effort, and it's really t- tailored to the job that you had or the job you are trained for. So there's no specific number of applications you have to put in. Uh, it's what is customary for your occupation and the market conditions that you're in. So, yeah, I think I think we're seeing that happen as people waiting things out a bit, not taking jobs that are literally survival jobs, but waiting for something that is more on par with what they used to do. Yeah. And I did talk to one gentleman yesterday who goes by, I just, just want to go by his first name, Douglas. And he had, he had some concerns about this, this work requirement. She's telling you, well, get training to better yourself in your career. From who? My industry is closed, you know. The option that they don't want to say is you have to look for a job outside your field until your field opens. How attractive of an employer, of employee, does that make you at that point? Because your employer is going to look at your resume, see what you were, and then expect you to stay at the job? Between both of you, I know you've probably both talked to people that are kind of looking to get back into the workforce. Do people find that it is maybe there are like all these jobs that are available or are they are some of the people saying that they are having trouble finding jobs in their industries? Well, I just got off the phone with uh, Bethany Kahn with the Culinary Union and they're still pretty much sitting at about 50% of their workforce is back and 50% has not been called back. And so her point was that people are desperate. They want to go back. Some of these folks had worked the same job for 20, 30, 40 years. Good chunk of them are very close to retirement, just wanted to work those final three or four years, and now they're waiting. It was a good middle-class paying job. 
they don't necessarily want to go backwards at this point. And so they're really hopeful that they'll get that call back to the casinos. The casinos are clearly like ramping up visitor wise, especially on weekends. But her argument was that the callbacks have maybe not kept pace with what visitor volume is showing. And so she really argued against the narrative of people just don't want to work. She said she gets phone calls from people in tears pretty much on a daily basis because they're eager to get back and aren't sure what to do. Mm-hmm. Michelle, what about you? What have you heard? I've heard actually a lot of the folks that I've been in touch with that have had troubles with Dieter over the past year. A lot of them are slowly saying, yeah, I actually went back to work a couple weeks ago or I'm getting more hours. Some of them are not at a hundred percent. One of the guys that I've been in touch with has I believe he's in the car mechanic industry and he's getting more and more hours, but he, before the pandemic was getting a lot of overtime. So it's not exactly where it uh, was previously, but it does seem like a lot of people are seeing things kind of improve. I I think the one thing to keep top of mind is that the shortage for the industries that are really hard hit, hit the businesses that are struggling to find workers, it's creating stressful environments in the, you know, the restaurants, the kitchens, like they're suddenly overwhelmed with people who are excited to go back out to eat. And yet they maybe don't have the staff to keep up with everything. So I know it's been a really stressful, challenging time on their end. And they're hoping that people get back to it and want to apply for these jobs. I spoke with someone from the Vegas chamber and his point was also that he's encouraging people to start looking now when there are a lot of opportunities, because when that September 1st expiration date comes along and people lose their benefits, it could just be a sudden avalanche of people in the market. And then they'll be back to square one. I think another dynamic that we're also seeing is I talked with some Republican senators yesterday about this work search requirement. They are supportive of it, even though they're very critical of some other things, how Dieter's handled other things. But they say, you know, maybe the market needs to respond and raise people's wages more. And one example of that is Uber, where they say they're hearing from Uber drivers that it's just not penciling out for them to be out on the road and putting these miles on their car and the rate that they're able to get. So they're in favor of kind of reinstating surge pricing that's been suspended during the state of emergency. And But I think there's just a general understanding that the standard has gone up a bit and maybe $8 an hour is not going to get you the person that you want. And the labor force is just not responding to that level of wage. And so people need to compete a little more for their workers. And I think we need to keep in mind too that Even those coming back, it's not necessarily zero to 80. It's a slow ramp up sometimes with those in the event coordinating type positions and production. So it's not not as easy as just walking back to your your full time pay necessarily. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for, for joining me today on the podcast. Appreciate you guys being here. All right, we are here for the DC debrief once again. Uh, I'm talking with our man in DC, Humberto Sanchez, about what's going on in the nation's capital. And as always, we're going to start with the weather. And I'm going to start first because up here in Reno, it snowed on Monday, and today it is 82 degrees, and I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> how is it? In, how is it in DC? It's sweltering. It's uh, we, our, our two week spring. I think is over. You've entered. You've entered the 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 humid season. That's right. The swamp becomes the swamp. 
<laughs> the swamp becomes the swamp. This time of year. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's start out with there's the the big news this week coming out of DC is there's just 1.8 trillion dollar plan from the White House, the American Family Plan. Um, do you want to tell me a little bit more about what that is? Yeah. So again, we have another sweeping expansion of the social safety net by by President Joe Biden, and there's a lot in it. Particularly, it was highlighted after his speech to Congress, right? He gave his first speech to a joint session of Congress. Typically, the first year of an administration, you don't do a State of the Union because you haven't been around for a year to, to, to look back. So he gave his first speech and he unveiled this plan, uh, $1.8 trillion. And, and the things that the delegation kind of highlighted about that they thought was really good for Nevada, it was it was three things that they pointed, but I mean, they, they're very supportive. We haven't heard from Mark Amadei yet, the, our lone Republican, but all the Democrats were very supportive of the plan. They called the American Families Plan. There's funding for free universal pre-K, which was, uh, it's a big deal here. I, I was talking to Representative Dina Titus about that, and she highlighted, she said uh, that she said that pre-K has been spotty in Nevada over the years. Uh, that was her term. And she said that, you know, the studies show that the earlier you start, uh, the better you do, the longer you stay, and the more prosperous you are when you finish. And so this is going to help the state over over the long haul, right? I guess it's going to prove, it's going to produce more productive folks down the road and which is going to help the economy and, and lift everybody up. Then Susie Lee, represents Susie Lee, also, she she said that there there's a, a nine billion dollars out of this one point eight trillion again to train more teachers and to increase diversity within within the ranks of teachers, and she said that would be particularly useful in Clark County. She pointed specifically to the there there's a four hundred teacher shortage in Clark County, and she said to have that filled, especially with a more diverse population of people, would be would be fantastic. She said she's excited about that, and uh, and then there, there was also a, a provision to allow Congress to provide unemployment benefits it, when when times are tough more quickly. We've had a, several pandemic relief bills and one of them, and the, the first one, the big one, the CARES Act from March of last year, that provided this expanded and enhanced unemployment insurance program. And in, in Nevada, there, it was tough, like I think in a lot of states, to, to launch. It, there was a lot of heavy lifting that the state had to do to get the money out to folks. People, there was long waits the system was overrun. And granted, it, it was also a pandemic, uh, which was like a, a once in a hundred year situation. So the, the need was great. And, the, the, you know, there wasn't the the infrastructure there to to meet the demand. And so the, the president is calling on Congress basically to allow for the adjustment of this amount of benefits to be raised and lowered as needed in, in order to kind of avoid any kind of delay. And that's, and Susie Lee pointed to the fact that, yeah, that, that there was any future legislative delays would be, would be eliminated in if economic hard times come. And so she was very, very high on that aspect as well. But there's a myriad of other things. There's, they want to extend the child tax credit that was extended in the American Rescue Plan, which was the $1.9 trillion package that the Senate Democrats and House Democrats passed in, in March. They want to extend that child tax credit, which has been increased through 2025. There's actually a call I was talking to Senator Catherine Cortez Masto. She would like to see that made permanent. And she pointed to the fact that the studies show that that would cut child poverty in half. It's a, it's a huge amount of money, but also it would, it would eliminate half of child poverty. So it's a big, big package. And so this is a, a package that comes right after President Biden also recently unveiled his infrastructure plan, which he wants $2 billion for infrastructure. And all these, all these programs, this infrastructure program and the American Families Plan, they face an uphill struggle. The, the, 
Republicans aren't convinced it's needed. They're very, very wary of the costs, and they're also very wary of the tax increases that are going to be needed to to pay for these things. So we'll see how we'll see how they they manage to to tackle this. I mean, with a with the two trillion dollar infrastructure plan, the one point eight trillion dollar. Uh, American Families Plan, and then you know you all of the the COVID relief bills that have come out and that have passed already. I mean, that's a lot of a lot of money moving around in uh, in DC right now. So we'll massive amount of money. Well, following that, there is there is something else going on in DC this week, which is this this TPS strike that's been going on. Can you kind of t- tell me a little bit about what what this is and what's going on at the Capitol there? Sure. The so there's a group of of TPS folks from Las Vegas who are participating in this national event that they've been holding here in, in DC. And it's it's basically a, a hunger strike. They've been folks from all over the country have been participating. They come in and they they go without food for three days and then they and then another group comes in. And it's a basically a, a, a protest to try to keep the pressure on Congress to do something about TPS and to, and DACA and to make, to do immigration reform, essentially. And uh, folks that is it wrapping up on Friday, it'll be, it'll have been going on for 43 days and three groups, three separate groups from Las Vegas would have participated. And this last group, there's folks from Honduras, folks with connections to El Salvador. And I was just talking to some of them today and they were telling me that, you know, they, they hope their status gets, they get permanent status in some way. They, they want to become citizens. They want to be, they want a pathway. And they say that living with uh, the uncertainty is, it's, it's very difficult. It's uh, difficult to make a living. It's difficult to try to, you know, just live a, a normal life without hang, that hanging over their heads. It's something they've actually done, not this strike, but they usually have a presence here every year. They come and they talk to the lawmakers, but due to COVID, the Capitol is closed to visitors, so they can't meet with their representatives. And and the in particular, TPS, the deadline for that is coming up in October. And I was talking again to Dina Titus, uh, Representative Dina Titus, and she was telling me that she expects at the very least President Joe Biden and his administration to extend that beyond October so that those people at least will have that, that peace of mind. All right. Well, Humberto, thank you so much for all your reporting you're doing over there across the across the nation. Uh, and I'm sure we'll keep up to date on whatever's going on in D.C. Uh, next week. So thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Keith Whitfield, Jackie Valley, Michelle Rundells and Humberto Sanchez for being on the show this week. Leave us a review wherever you listen. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, we're on every platform. Also, share the show with a friend or on social media. It helps the show grow so we can continue to bring you fantastic interviews and updates every week. Email us with any questions, comments, concerns, barbecue ideas, ergonomic chair recommendations, or whatever else is on your mind. You can reach me at joey at thenvindy.com and Jacob is at jacob at thenvindy.com. Reno band People With Bodies wrote and performed our original theme song. If you want to hear more of their music, you can find them on Spotify or Bandcamp. There was additional music in today's episode from our own Joey Lovato. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening. Blech, that was terrible. Oh, no, thank you. <laughs> thank you for listening.